This is the moment in which we all need to assume our responsibilities. Climate change is out of control. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that will earn that great honour in the future. We're on stolen land, land that was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We acknowledge that we can't hope to have any form of climate justice without justice for our First Nations brothers and sisters. And finally, we hope that we wise up and learn from the ancient wisdom that they've accumulated from uh, nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before it was stolen. We're playing with fire. At first, just let's get the facts straight. Last week's Thursday was the hottest day ever recorded globally. And that's according to satellite data from the US National Centers for Environmental Prediction and a number of other scientific bodies and universities and so on. Earth's average temperature on Thursday last week was a record high. And we can't say that the media didn't cover this. They did. They certainly covered it on Monday when the temperature hit 17.01 Celsius degrees which is the highest temperature that the global average temperature has been in 125,000 years. And then the next day, Tuesday, it climbed up to 17.18 degrees. And when we got to Thursday, again it climbed up to 17.23. And we didn't hear anything about that in the media. And I think this is symptomatic in a way of how the media works. Something about temperatures, yeah, we can tell it, but then we quickly move on, don't we? And then we talk about the latest sports results or, or what somebody said to somebody, etc. What the media forgets to warn us about is that this temperature record is caused by our burning of fossil fuels, coal, gas and oil. And the other thing it forgets to tell us is that it's going to get worse. It's going to get completely out of hand if we're not fast enough with getting off fossil fuels. Here in the, in the Sustainable Hour, we're beginning to sound really like a broken record, aren't we? Talking about this. On one hand, we have politicians pretending nothing is happening. Like our foreign minister busy traveling around the world, talking about the benefits of gas. And our environment minister continuing to approve one coal mine after the other and gas fracking projects and so on. As if there was nothing wrong. And if we look at ourselves, are we paying attention? You know, did you talk about this temperature record with your family last week? With your neighbors? With your work colleagues? How many of us actually took in what's happening to our world? Tony, what's your response? How did you experience seeing the grim figures up there on the TV screens? And then no response. No politicians saying, hey folks, listen, we need to do something. For me, Mick, it was very much the usual, like, what's it going to take to get that message through uh, and, and get them to act appropriately? 
each week records are smashed and it really means that's more real human beings whose life has been extinguished and the impacts that has on them and their loved ones plus the destruction that's caused yeah we saw the pictures from spain and this was you know in the same breath listen here to abc the world as they're reporting both about climate denial and about the the climate calamities that are happening around the world in the same breath you are our top stories the foreign minister talks up the benefits of the greater sunrise gas project during a trip to timor leste and motorists forced to cling to their cars after flash flooding in spain you're watching the world it's like people are taken by surprise once again when all the water comes down or or when the temperatures start rising, which they will here in Australia when the summer comes. That's what we're being told anyway. I think we've already started calling market OAM. We've already started on your global outlook, haven't we? Uh, sorry for taking your topic in here uh, right from the top, but this was in a, in a sense, you know, the biggest news in a long time here in the sustainable hour. And I think it's something we need to reflect on. It's something we need to be together around with our listeners. Well, you ask what my reaction was, Mick, and my reaction was to scan the world's press in order to find out just how it was reported. So that's where I'll be kicking off the roundup for this week, if I can. It begins in New York with um, a strong statement from the climate scientist Frederick Otto who criticised the media for reporting only the fact that it was a record. He said, this is not a milestone that we should be celebrating. It's a death sentence for people and ecosystems everywhere. It's up to journalists to make those stakes clear. He said, we're recording historically warm oceans, unparalleled low sea ice levels around Antarctica, and the planet is experiencing its warmest June ever charted. And then we've had Earth's hottest day in at least 125,000 years. He said the sudden surge of broken heat records that happened last week was scaring scientists. This reminds me of a Hemingway quote, ironically from the sun also rises, he said. How did you go bankrupt? Two ways, gradually and then suddenly. That seems to be happening with climate change too. It is exactly what he's saying, gradually and then suddenly. June 2023 is likely to be remembered as the start of the big change in the climate system, with key tipping points either flashing red warning lights and signs that some systems are moving towards a state from which they may never recover. Climate scientist Zeke Hausfather warned that Earth's critical reflective polar ice caps are at their lowest extent on record. That's in the record is the satellite era, 20-odd years. With sea ice around Antarctica at a record low and the Greenland ice sheet experiencing one of the largest June melt events ever recorded. He said that June 2023 was the hottest June ever measured which means that 2023 as a whole is now the odds-on favourite to be the warmest year on record. Globally, the oceans set records for warmth on the surface and down to more than 6,000 feet deep. 
throughout the whole month of June, with temperatures so far above the norm that the conditions alarmed scientists, policymakers and the public. Add to that the Canadian forest fires, adding significant amounts of carbon to the atmosphere. There was record-breaking heat on nearly every continent during the month, according to the independent climate statistician Maximilian Herrera. Along with the deadly late June heat in Mexico and the south-centred United States, extreme readings have been widespread in remote Siberia, with hundreds of daily heat records set and signs that the heat will just continue to get worse. And then this happens to be at a time when there was a publication of a new book written by the respected journalist Jeff Goodall, and it's called The Heat Will Kill You First. It also makes the point that heat is very much underreported by the world's media. The book was promoted as essential reading for climate journalists everywhere. The kind of heat I'm talking about here is not an incremental bump on the thermometer, he says. It is heat as an active force, one that can bend railroad tracks and kill you before you even understand that your life is at risk. News coverage has a track record of underreporting heat wave deaths. Death certificates tend not to name extreme heat as a cause of death. Only later do the studies make an accurate count. In 2003, for example, a six-week heat wave hit Europe. In Paris, morgues overflowed and bodies were stacked in the streets. Initial reports put the death toll at 15,000, a figure that journalists repeated for years. But statisticians later concluded that, in fact, more than 70,000 people had died in France of that extreme heat that year. In one of the first climate attribution studies, researchers found that climate change has doubled the likelihood of such extreme heat waves. And the book's worldwide statistics show that heat already kills nearly twice as many people per year as guns do. And the death toll is bound to increase as global temperatures continue their relentless rise. Ah, so after all that, I came back to Geelong, where Geelong Port's new owners announced this week that they would dump the port's carbon neutral certification plans. This comes less than two years after the port achieved this status. The new owners, who are the US infrastructure investor Stonepeak, along with the Australian fund Spirit Super, paid $1.1 billion for the port last year. They said that the port would not apply for certification in the 2023 financial year and would stop buying offsets to reduce emissions. A statement said that the company was working on a long-term carbon reduction plan instead. Now, this can be read two ways. It could mean that Geelong Port is turning its back on climate change or, and this is my optimistic view, the new owners are dumping the port's former greenwashing stance of buying carbon offsets to achieve their figures. Offsets for the financial year 2021 to 22 will be the last offsets we purchase 
as we work on delivering a realistic and achievable medium and long-term carbon reduction plan, the statement read. This plan will be established by December 2024. We'll keep an eye on what's happening, but it strikes me that we're moving away from greenwashing in Geelong. And finally, a couple of pieces of good news. New motor industry figures show that in Australia, EVs accounted for 9.4% of new car sales in June, up from 1.7% a year ago. That's a huge increase in motor terms. The figures also show that the age of the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle appears to be drawing to an end, at least in Australia, with plug-in hybrids selling just a fraction of the total EV sales. Now, this news coincided with the EV Council's release of a new report on the importance of fuel efficiency standards and how electric vehicles will make driving much cheaper for Australians. Their research shows that Australian drivers could save up to $10,000 per year by driving an electric vehicle if the federal government proposed fuel efficiency standards are implemented. And finally, from Japan, Toyota announced a technological breakthrough that would allow it to halve the weight, size and cost of batteries in what could herald a major leap forward for electric vehicles. The world's second largest car maker was already pursuing a plan to roll out cars with advanced solid state batteries by 2025. And that's my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our guest today is Russell Collins. Now, Russell heads up Rocketman Designs. So welcome to the show, Russell. Thanks for coming on. Tell us about what's up front for you with your Rocketman Designs. Hi, Tony. Um, nice to be here. So Rocketman Designs is uh, an umbrella company that I set up so that I could do my various um, shenanigans in clean biomass combustion development and through the, which is set up in Australia. But most of the activity um, actually plays out in India, where I've got a company called Himalayan Rocket Stove. And the primary focus there is to, um, uh, in particular, we're focused on space heating because that's a, a largely overlooked area of, um, there's a lot of work done in clean cooking, still massively needed. Um, yeah, the whole clean cooking issue in um, globally, we're talking about 3 billion people globally still burning on rudimentary cook fires, which has a massive impact on health and uh, smoke pollution. So we're kind of an, an offshoot of that sector. We're looking at space heating. There's about um, 100 million people across the Himalayan belt alone who rely on space heating for survival through four to six months of the year. And families are using around about one to two mature trees every year just to keep their homes warm so over the time of that i've been traveling in the indian himalayas which goes back over 30 years now uh, i spent about 10 years of my life in india and um, watching the big forests of the himalayan belt get cut down for both development but also for cooking and heating um, i realized at some point that we could probably improve on that so 
through my work with Rocketman Designs, I started tinkering with Rocket Stove technology, hence the name Rocket, which shows up here and there. And um, that's a technology that's been around for a while and it's been applied to lots of kind of off-grid alternative lifestyles in North America and Europe and to the clean cooking sector in, in the developing world. But no one seemed to have applied it to space heating at scale. So that's really the, the small contribution that I've made to that whole sector is to work out a way of bringing a really affordable solution in terms of a rocket stove technology space heating device that can also be used for cooking that's culturally compatible. That was the, probably the hardest thing to achieve was something that actually fit into the culture of the Himalayan people. So, you know, need to be low to the ground. And so innovating the technology, developing new ways of, of basically superheating the flue gases. That's really what it's about. Uh, you can get the flue gases up over seven, 650 to 700 Celsius. You can burn out the visibles and you get it up over eight, nine, uh, 800 Celsius and you make quite a clean exhaust gas. So, and by cleaning up the exhaust gases, we're actually doubling the efficiency. We're actually tapping into that unburnt fuel that most smoky fires are actually just pumping out into the atmosphere. So that's really the essence of the technology and it's what I've been doing since 2014. Uh, it's been pretty much the focus of my uh, work life. And we're now up to, uh, just looking at my spreadsheets now, where we did around about 5,000 units last year. I think all up we've got about 10,000 units in the field. 10 to 12,000 units now. And we're just in the very final stages now of getting approval to, um, well, having, having had them audited by Gold Standard uh, for carbon credits and um, we're getting them rated at about three tonnes per unit per year for 10 years as, a, as an abatement, which is... Um, it's a flawed metric, and I, I, um, you know, I'm not going to defend the the carbon credit system globally. But in terms of what it means for us, being able to sell three tons per unit per year, so thirty tons for the lifetime of the unit, what that effectively allows us to do is to bring the cost down of the units, so we just funnel that money back into the company as we're a social enterprise, and it effectively is half the cost. So we've now already been rolling out units at half their um, retail price, which is literally below manufacturing cost to get clean combustion devices into family homes. Well, that's, uh, that's very good, Russell. But what do you burn in the units? It's wood. So it's biomass, um, which is primarily wood. And the, the next frontier for us, and we've been uh, working on this the last few years, is to actually start converting family homes over from forest resources over to waste biomass, a pelletized and briquetted waste biomass. So we're talking about the um, Himalayan area of, of northern India. Are there sustainable forests there that, that will keep your fuel coming or are you clearing forests in order to create space and, and cooking heaters? That's exactly the right question. The the current use of the forest is unsustainable and hence the project. So what our device does is it reduces the impact on forests by 50% straight up. And when we add 
waste biomass into the mix, we reduce that impact by 100%. So, you know, and I understand the argument for not harvesting any forest, but the reality on the ground is people will cut down trees to stay warm because it's a survival need. And what we're offering is a solution that saves half of their fuel cost, the fuel demand initially, and which can transition into a total fuel saving because there are no alternatives. Gas and electricity are simply not viable. What about solar? Or, you know, you've got the ice melt from the Himalayas and that surely would bring in hydroelectricity. Well, so we have to deal with the reality on the ground at the moment. And solar is interesting. It depends what you mean by solar, but uh, solar passive design, I would say, is the gold standard. If a, and there have been some wonderful projects uh, in particular, Sona Mongchuk from Ladakh, who's um, quite famous in Himalayan regions for his innovations around solar passive design. The issue is it means completely rebuilding or building the ground up a, a dwelling that is designed to trap the heat uh, solar passively. Now, most families are simply not in a position to do that, like 99.9% simply not rebuild their house to make it solar passive. But what they will do is they'll put in a more highly efficient space heater. So it's really about being pragmatic and putting a solution in front of people that is actually achievable and affordable. Uh, sorry, what was the other question about electricity? So, yeah, electrical grids, there is hydro in various regions of the Himalayas. The grids are very patchy. They are, they are improving. Um, but we're talking about remote Himalayan regions, and these are areas that are inaccessible some of the regions are inaccessible for six months of the year roads are simply closed through the snow and ice melt for lunches on a regular basis washouts and um, in my time of traveling up there over 30 years the impact of climate change has been devastating i actually became quite aware of, of real tangible uh, climate change effects probably 20 years ago 15 20 years ago watching areas that had been reliably dry in the summer for over a thousand years and we know that because there are a thousand year old monasteries that have intact frescoes from uh, one in particular from 996 that i used to visit on a regular basis and those frescoes started getting water damage for the first time in the last 15 to 20 years and these are in monasteries that have are made of adobe so they're a, just a, a ground earth uh, structure with a flat roof with sticks and um, just round earth on the ceiling. So they've never had wet rain. They've had dry snow, but never wet rain in over a thousand years. And every year now, for the last 15, 20 years, they've had rainfall. So I'm just kind of, kind of illuminating some of the background, both from a climate perspective, but also from a, a challenge in terms of access to the region. So that, that rainfall has not only given us a kind of an indicator of, of the fact that the climate is changing, but it's also washes out roads, uh, washes out power lines. It, it creates an incredible structural challenge to the systems and, and infrastructure systems for those communities. We had a, an item in last week's Global Roundup which said that the melt from the Himalayas and especially uh, Everest 
is considerably smaller because it hasn't had the chance to build this year. And that is likely to mean that there's going to be floods and heat waves in most of the Southeast Asian nations because the Himalayan melt, snow melt, basically gives the water for all of the main rivers in Southeast Asia, and that includes China. Vietnam and the Southeast Asia. Absolutely. The Himalayas, they're, they're called the third pole uh, in terms of its um, ice-carrying capacity um, after, obviously, the North and South Poles. And because of its altitude, I think it was an early barometer for us to see what was happening globally in terms of the climate impacts. It's uh, a very highly sensitive system. Uh, it seems to respond more, um, well, has responded sooner and, and more dramatically and what would you say? What would you see as the long-term solution? Because clearly, cutting down the forest can't be a long-term solution. Yeah. Well, like I said, um, we're tr trying to transition now our customers over to waste biomass fuels, and what that means are things like rice chaff, paddy waste, um, of which there are megatons every year in North India. In fact. Uh, Coming up in October, uh, November, when they do the big harvests across the Punjab, which are the, the, the vast plains just south of the Himalayan belt in North India, um, they burn off the stubble and it creates a smoke plume that's about as big as, um, well, probably almost as big as Europe. It spans across the Himalayan belt, thousands of kilometres. You can easily see it from space. It's a massive um, disaster of... It happens every year. And so what we're trying to do is tap into that um, biomass that just gets burnt off, creates pollution, obviously releases carbon, uh, get it pelletized and or briquetted. And there is a there is some embedded energy when you you try and make a product like that. But uh, when you crunch the numbers, it's far superior to embed a little bit of energy to compress that biomass and transport it and get it up to the remote regions. So, so we're kind of looking at a triple win there. We're trying to reduce the pollution from, from the burn-off. We're trying to use a biomass product that is already available. And so we're tapping into stored sunlight in the form of biomass, which is obviously a wonderful fuel when it is harvested sustainably, and get it up to the communities who are used to burning something. So also habit change is one of the largest issues when it comes to trying to introduce new technologies. And if you can manage a technological transition that incorporates or approximates as closely as possible old patterns of behavior, you have a much higher likelihood of success. So getting people to burn something rather than transition to some other completely different form of technology is far more likely to happen. And, and it's actually just a really good form of stored energy. So um, I haven't, I've yet to see a, a better solution than that in terms of sustainable use of energy um for that region you know and every region needs to be assessed for what's available and, and what suits the climate and so forth but biomass combustion does seem to be when it's done properly to me seems to be the best solution for that area
just like the seed I don't know where to go Through dirt and shadow I go I'm reaching light through the struggle Just like the seed I'm chasing the wonder I unravel myself
Russell, it, it seems to me that furthering this, your your work up there, the, the job you have, that, that would be creating jobs for locals? Sure. The company in India itself employs about 20 people directly and indirectly through our dealer networks, probably another 20, 30, or maybe 50 people. Um, then there's the manufacturing, so there's probably another 50-odd people in manufacturing. Um, so, you know, not big numbers in terms of jobs, but we are creating employment. Uh, all that money stays in India. It, it rotates around. Uh, we channel it back into further technology. So we're now working on a range of cook stoves, uh, institutional cook stoves. So employment is certainly a part of it. Probably a bigger a concern for us is reaching low-income families. And, you know, when we're bringing a new technology to the market, we initially had to uh, approach it, approach the upper end of the market segment, so the top 10% of income earners in, in a particular region. And that allowed us to establish the product in a re uh, an area, get the feedback from the communities, uh, get it visible, and... Then once we've got the volumes going and the scale up and now uh, bringing in the carbon credits to help fund the ongoing scaling, we're able to now uh, reach more people in the lower income sector. So just on that, the carbon credits, so that, am I right in uh, thinking that that income allowed you to cut the cost of the, of the product, the final product? Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. I mean, we're still yet to actually get um, the first return, um, but the partner we're working with, which is South Pole, um, advanced us a million dollars a year ago to because they were so confident of um, the credits coming through. And it, we're literally in the last few weeks of that process. We should be able to actually get money to pay them back in the next um, six months. So, yes, we're, we're all because of that million dollars, we're able to halve the cost of 5,000 units and get them out into the market at lower than production cost. Now, the units themselves, are, are they what do they look like? Are they like a stove, a wood burning stove that we would recognize here? Um, similar but different. So, in, in India, they're described as a Jeep design. So, if you imagine a fairly boxy looking um, Jeep with a with the bonnet section uh, is, is the front section with um, where we feed the fuel. And so it's got a, a kind of a stepped uh, cooking surface. So imagine a, a square looking Jeep with a, where you're cooking on the lower surface is the bonnet and then the upper surface is the, um, the, the main cab section. And that's where the, the rocket, uh, internal rocket is inside the box. And then it has a convolution of, of internal gas flow, which maximizes the thermal radiance. So we're not just burning the gases more cleanly, but we're also more efficiently transferring heat into the room through the design of the product. And most of the rooms that you're looking at uh, would be in, what, apartments or individual houses? Well, so the domestic Himalayan houses um, tend to stand alone. They would be you know, depending on at the affluence of the family involved, but, you know, anything from a small single or double room cottage up to, you know, 10, you know, five, five room household. Probably the typical house would be a two to three bedroom house with um, what they call a 
uh, three BHKs, what they call an indie BHK being bed, hall, kitchen. So three beds, hall and kitchen. So the hall, hall slash kitchen is where the heating unit would go. It typically goes in the middle of the room and culturally people sit around the, the heating stove, which is, um, on low bench seating. So low meaning like literally a carpet on the floor or maybe just raised by a small padded cushion. So it's really um, necessary for the people across the room to be able to see each other. So that was also a height consideration. But generally speaking, people sit around the unit and the person who is cooking will sit at the unit. So the, the whole thing was designed around woman of the household being able to sit on the floor at the unit to cook um, at the same time as it's also heating the space. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm also guessing that there aren't too many electric heaters because you haven't got Harvey Normans around the corner, have you? Um, so uh, when you said that the system is for burning something, you really mean that, that that's the general thought process of just about everybody in that area, is it? You know, if you want to get warm, you, you light a fire and burn something. Exactly. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, culturally, the, the habit is to burn wood somehow, and typically they would burn it in a very simple metal box, which, uh, you know, as you imagine, it flares up. There's no air control. There's no thermal um, uh, efficiency at all. It's just basically 90% of the heat going straight up the flue pipe and then a little bit of sharp radiant heat coming out through the room. So that's how most people use but burning is definitely the predominant way of heating. And there is a little bit of electrical heating, but it's fairly patchy. You know, imagine the old one and two bar radiators. Um, and what happens, of course, is during the winter, um, if it is hydro backed, then water flows are slow because prisoners are frozen. So then what's the the voltage drops, you know, usually I think India's running on 220 volts. You have to be down to uh, 170, 150. So you have very low voltage, very low current flow. Uh, I've seen uh, one bar radiator. So, you know, a single a one bar of radiator is typically one kilowatt. So a two bar radiator is two kilowatt. You know, sitting literally with your hands inches away from the bar, trying to feel the heat coming off of it. You can just see a dull glow. So they're effectively useless. Yeah. And what sort what of population are we talking about there, Russell? Well, when I talk about the Himalayan belt, I guess I'm, the, the section that I have access to would be north to northeast India. And in between the north and northeast, you have Nepal and Bhutan and Sikkim. So all of which we access to varying degrees, but Nepal less so because of border friction, um, but certainly Sikkim and Bhutan. And, but if we include that whole belt, we're talking about over 100 million people. So we're talking about four times the population of Australia who burn wood in order to keep warm in the winter. And that is pouring an awful lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. And your, your method is really making them burn it far more efficiently so that there, is, uh, there are fewer uh, units of CO2 going into the atmosphere without changing radically their system correct yeah so so there are multiple layers of benefit but the the initial one you know and carbon's obviously the simplest metric but we 
just simply by reducing the fuel demand by 50% means if they were burn, burning two trees a year, now they're burning one tree a year. So, which means that, that that's a tree that's staying in the ground. So obviously mm -hmm. there are ecological benefits beyond carbon for that tree staying in the ground. You know, um, obviously bio, biosphere support, um, soil retention and so forth. So there are multiple layers of benefit, but the other aspects which are more subtle is that because of the, the efficiency of the unit, it actually, we've designed the fuel box to be much smaller than a conventional unit. So it only takes small bits of wood, which means they tend to harvest sticks and branches rather than the whole tree. So it's hard to measure this impact exactly, but we can see through anecdotal uh, feedback from our customers that they're actually harvesting much less living pole trees. So that's a, a conditional benefit. But then a, a very easy to measure thing is that the pollution reduction is staggering, like at least 90% reduction in smoke pollution because it burns, literally burns so clean that you can't tell that it's on. And in fact, an interesting um, side effect of that is that people who use our stoves say that they get less visits from their neighbours because people in a community will determine if when someone is home and their fire is on by the amount of smoke coming out of their chimney. And when they're using our stoves and they don't see any smoke, they think, well, either they're not home or the fire's not on, so they won't drop in. So <laughs> whether that's a good thing or not depends on the particular family. But it's an interesting illustration of how effective it is. It literally is invisible, the, the emissions from the stove. Mm. That, that would have marked in uh, influences on health. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, health and also black carbon. So the the highest impact for snowmelt in Himalayas uh, above temperature rise is actually black carbon. So the soot that settles on the snow is uh, the highest causal impact for accelerating the snowmelt, which obviously leads to flooding and so forth. So by reducing that particulate uh emission now a lot of not all of it's coming from household burning a lot of it comes from diesel trucks and so forth but um household fires are definitely a large contributor to that black carbon russell that's good yeah any, any reduction is a good reduction so i spend a lot of time on farms and i think just about every property i go on to has got a wood burning stove for heating there are also ones that are have pipes running through and they also can produce hot water. Um, there's various types and I think some of them are now banned in Australia gradually. I think it's, I'll use the word double burning. My question really is, is there any application in Australia? Yeah. So since COVID, and I've, I used to be in India half the year um, up until 2019. So this last few years I've been in focus more on Australian solutions. And one of the things I've been working on is exactly that issue. How can we either improve on a combustion heater for Australia or my preference would be to simply create something that would in improve on existing heaters because obviously there's so much embedded energy in, in a you know 100 kilos of steel that's already working to a certain degree. And just coming back a step, Australian emission standards have been tweaked significantly in the last five to 10 years. Um, Australia and New Zealand have a, a, a shared standard around that. And so a lot of old combustion heaters, which used to be sold, are now no longer able to be sold, but existing ones that are in homes are allowed to be used. So there is actually a lot of combustion heaters in the market already, 
which if we could find a way to tweak them and make them more efficient would be great. And so I've actually got a prototype that I'm using at home now. We, we run the fire almost every night and I've got a system that effectively doubles the heat output and reduces uh, the pollution somewhat. Um, and just to explain a little bit the tech, the reason why Australian heaters are, tend to be so polluting and why they're frowned upon is because, you know, it's in the name, slow combustion heater. The way to get a, a fire to burn slowly is to starve it from oxygen. And when you do that, you effectively have a smouldering fire rather than a clean burning fire. So people like smouldering fires because they burn longer and slower, but they're horribly polluting. And if you've ever been to a cold city like Hobart in the winter, it's quite disgusting how how bad the air quality is and so in a sense i guess i support the fact that um standards are now trying to well, there are various government initiatives trying to phase out combustion heaters i think the emphasis should be personally i think they should be on making them burn cleaner because they can be and it is something i am working on and i have a, a an active prototype at the moment that i'm quite happy with but i'm still tweaking it yeah, it's Russell. That's good because when I'm in these places in 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 the winter, I um, generally manage to try and cook on them, like make soup or something or other. So I don't feel as guilty. Yeah. Look, the thing about biomass is it's it's actually is one of the few truly sustainable fuel sources we have if it's managed properly. You know, and and we have a there's so much waste biomass in our system generally. You know, if you look at um, the way that any sawmill at the, at, the, at the stuff that they burn off in a big smouldering heap out the back right through to agricultural waste if we simply find ways to package that biomass and for some reason because i've also was doing work with pellets as well um north america and europe use biomass pellets a lot sawdust pellets they're a very common fuel source and for some reason in australia there's only one or two suppliers of biomass pellets in this country because we just don't have a market for it. We, people generally don't have an understanding about using pellets. Uh, we have very few heaters and we have very few, few fuel suppliers. And that's something I think is a missed opportunity. I think that's something we could look into a lot more because the biomass that we, we have the biomass here, it's just simply about packaging that in a form that can be readily used. In acknowledging uh the trees that are being used, are there any tree planting operations that are working or is it just too cold for six months of the year? Would they survive that? Um, you're talking about Himalayas, obviously. Um, well, so it depends on altitude and it depends on various factors. There's a, a very distinct line, let's say, of, of uh, altitude Above which there are very few trees, and below which there are a lot of trees. So, which is around about three to three thousand, three and a half thousand meters. So, that's kind of what's known as the tree line. And so, below three and a half thousand meters altitude, there are fabulous, rich, dense forests, cedars and birches and deodars. And they're the forests that are being felled now and trucked all around the country, and especially, and, and government subsidizes the, the cutting and ship trucking of those logs up to the higher altitude regions. In the higher regions, like Ladakh, Spiti, these higher um, cold desert regions where they don't have typically native forests, 
They have been experimenting over the last 20, 30 years. There, is, um, there was an indigenous poplar, but they've now introduced a, I think it's a European poplar, that's very hardy and it's actually um, taking off quite well. So, so there is a poplar and there is one other species which uh, does quite well. So, yes, it is possible and there are tree planting projects and it's just about finding the right species for the right regions. What's the attraction for you in that, in that country? So, you know, just through life circumstance, I ended up there in my early 20s, back in the early 90s, and uh, fell in love with the place, the, the Himalayas, the cultures, the people, the environment, and uh, just kept going back. So, you know, I just have had a lifelong uh, love affair with that place. It's my, it feels like my second home. And, yeah, for whatever reason, that's just been the, the place I felt most drawn to. And, you know, over, over many years of travel and, and living and working there, I guess I just built relationships with people and that, that yeah. creates a bond. And, you know, through the people, I can see the hardships that happen inside the family homes. And, I, and by visiting the same places year after year, I could see the impacts that were happening as a result of, um, you know, various factors. So, yeah, just trying to, I guess, contribute back to a place that I get yep. very for. Russell, you mentioned um, various plantings. I think you were going down the line. These are the ones that will grow there well. But my concern would be uh, the various densities of the wood that's being harvested and the burn rate if it's, you know, let's be ridiculous and say it's a pine compared, I uh, can't say Jarrah, that won't translate, um, to a, a much more dense wood like uh, maybe iron bark in Australia. Yeah. So so the concern is that they're planting trees with lower calorific value. Is that what you mean? Yes. Thanks for the <laughs> correct terms. Yeah. Well, um, so biomass um, tends to the, – the, the talk about calories for a moment because it, it's, it's an important factor um, – in Australian hardwoods, obviously, have fairly high caloric value, and typically, when you talk about softwoods, they have a lower caloric value. Although that depends on the resin um, in the timber. So, there are timbers in the Himalayas which have very high uh, calories, and it's not necessarily their density. It can be just they have a very flammable resin. And uh, the highest that I know of in terms of biomass is pine needles. That's got a calorific value of 6,000 kilocalories per kilogram, and which, as compared to hardwoods, which are about 4,000, softwoods, which are about 3,000. So that's kind of the, the spectrum. The challenge, there's more than enough pine needles to fill the, the biomass needs of the Himalayas. The problem is the form of the pine needles, it, it doesn't have, in order to turn, make a, a loose biomass product, so I'm, gonna, I'm kind of expanding your question beyond just timber into including all, a range of fuels because that's really, for me, that's where the rubber hits the road. So in terms of timbers, you know, the calorie range is probably, let's say, three and a half to four and a half thousand calories, but at the end of the day, any calorie is a good calorie when it comes to heating. So it's it really just from a tree planting perspective, it's just whatever timber will grow in a region is a good timber. From a fuel perspective, 
if we can get waste biomass like pine needles, which are shed every year by the trees, they're actually a fire hazard. So they, you have spontaneous lightning strikes which start forest fires and these long, um, they burn, they smolder for weeks on end in the summer in various regions of the Himalayas where these pine needle carpet of pine needles just kind of get burning and, and they can't put them out. So it would be to everyone's interest to collect them up, turn them into briquettes and turn them into fuel sources. The problem is to make a briquette, you need lignans in the uh, biomass to bind the um, loose granular product into something that holds together, which pine needles don't have. So one of the experiments we've been doing is trying to combine pine needles with other products and either wood, wood shavings or um, ideally some other thing like a rice husk, which is also a waste product to get, which is also low calories. And then the other factor is the amount of ash. So anyway, these are the, these are kind of all the variables that we're playing with, and it's why it's a tricky problem to solve. We're trying to get low ash, high calories, and and binding factor all with a biomass product that's um, readily available, and we can do it in, in a location that's not too remote, so that we don't have massive um, transportation costs to get these to our end users, and. We've, we've gotten pretty close. We're, we're, we've got some suppliers in India who are uh, supplying us with product that's almost good enough for our customers, and now it's just a matter of getting the price down. And so if wood costs the end user around uh, 15 to 20 rupees per kilo, and I won't bother doing the conversion because it's all just relative, um, the briquettes are costing around about 25 rupees, so it's costing a bit more than wood. and our customers are saying that if we could get them down to 10 to 15 rupees so make it cheaper than wood, then they would absolutely buy them. So that's really now where I'm in the process now lobbying the government and or private sector uh, funders to help us subsidise the cost of getting the briquettes to our end users. So I know I kind of went on a bit of a tangent there, but, but just in terms of that bigger picture of finding the calories and getting the calories to the end user is the problem to be solved at this point. And yeah, Russ, thank you, Russell, because you cleaned up my question very well. <laughs> Russell, we began today talking about this average global temperature that last week was above 17 degrees globally. What did it make you think last week with these three hottest days in 125,000 years that we heard about in the media? But we didn't hear much about the connection between that record and what we need to do with our burning of fossil fuels. So, um, yes, to be honest, it's impacted me quite significantly. I, it's hard to put into words. And I've been feeling actually quite sad this whole week. I feel like I don't see, I don't see humanity willingly turning around the trajectory that we're on uh, by choice. We're just simply not uh, coordinated enough as a species to do it. So I suspect we need to have some kind of calamitous breakdown somewhere in our system before any meaningful change will actually happen. I mean, I'm not surprised that we've been on this trajectory and like I said, I've been watching climate impacts for you know, a good 20 or 30 years. Um, the fact that we're here now, it's like, okay, 
at least finally the numbers are maybe compelling enough that the I think the voice of the naysayers is is being drowned out by the overwhelming avalanche of evidence. And so now at least the conversation seems to be taken more seriously at one level. But in terms of, um, you know, to be honest, I just don't tune into mainstream media. I don't have a television. I don't listen to radio. I get my news from Twitter and podcasts. So I see the data points, but I don't, I don't listen to the, the noise of, of uh, mainstream chatter. So I don't know how it gets interpreted. I kind of, you know, get that second hand from people like you feeding that back to me. But um, my personal heartfelt feeling about it is, okay, you know, I think, I think we're on. I think, this is, I think this next five years is going to be devastating, to be honest. I mean, we just, I just lived through the biggest floods in history in my part of the world, and we're now looking at El Nino and possibly, you know, an incredibly dry, dangerous fire season ahead, you know, with all evidence points to that. We've got incredibly high fuel loads on the ground. So from a, at a personal level, you know, everything I'm doing on the land here is about preparing for too much water and too much heat, both the sun, you know, the, the clips. And... And that's all I know how to do. It's just like at a personal level, I'm, I'm doing what I can in my home and I'm doing what I can with my work and I'm just sitting back and watching what's playing out. And yeah, you know, I don't, I certainly don't have a solution. I don't know what the answers are at all. I, I think there are problems with every solution that gets proposed. Um, I think, you know, just decarbonizing the world has problems. Like it's, there are secondary impacts from that that will lead to knock-on effects. So we do not have an easy way forward. Maybe as a way to end on a on a better, a more optimistic note is to notice that in Europe last week, once again, the energy prices went below zero because of all the solar that's happening in, in Europe at the moment. The fact that energy can become free, it's been happening because of wind energy at one point, and now because of solar, is something to cheer on. It shows that there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel, which is free, clean energy. We just need to find ways to get there. So hang in there, as we say to our listeners, We will be back next week with more good stories like yours, Russell. Russell Collins, thank you for, for sharing yours with us today. And all the best of luck to you with, with your endeavors. And uh, hope to have you back again, maybe in a year's time, to hear how it's developing. Thank you. Thanks for having me on and thanks for the conversation. Keep being the difference. <laughs> be the difference. I know the world's gone mad, it's true, the difference. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Watching